Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would uh, once again help us to be receptive of your Word and also the work of your Spirit that you desire to do in us as well as through us. Uh, We also pray um, over the teaching. We pray that your word will go forth and accomplish the purpose you have for your word. And so, once again, Father, fill us afresh with your Spirit. Equip us. Use us for your glory. And I do personally pray for the gift of teaching tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, we are in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start at the 10th verse and go through chapter 12, verse 3. And the title of the study is, It's in God's Plan. It's in God's Plan. And so in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we've seen so far four major events. We've seen the creation, the fall, the flood, And we've also seen the dispersion, that is the dispersion of the people at the Tower of Babel. And so that is the first section of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. And of course, we're still in 11, but uh, we're past that, that last or that fourth major event, the Tower of Babel. And so, so far, we've seen some foundations that have been laid out for the rest of Scripture And so, for example, we've seen the first sin by man or mankind. We've seen the fall of man or humans from innocence, from perfection. We've seen the fall of humans from fellowship with God. The fellowship had been broken. We've also seen death that has been brought to the world because of sin. Not only that, we've seen worldwide judgment through the flood, the repopulation of the earth uh, through Noah's three sons. And then we've seen uh, why and how there are different um, languages, nations, and people groups on this earth. So we've seen all of these things so far in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And in all of these things, what we see is the reason for God's plan of redemption. And we're going to see that as we, or as you, I may not be able to go through the rest of the Old Testament with you, but, but as you and maybe in your own time continue to go through the Old Testament readings, you'll see this plan of redemption unfold. You see it come to fruition, of course, in the section of the Bible we call the New Testament. Uh, but today, as we get into the Word of God, we come to the second major section of the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50. Now, this section deals with four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And tonight, of course, we're going to focus on Abram, also known as Abraham. And so we're going to start by reading uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. It says, uh, this is the genealogy or the family records of Shem, who uh, again is one of the sons of Noah. Now, Shem was 100 years old, and he begot or became the father of Arphaxad two years after the flood. 
And after he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived another 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. Another uh, scripture may say Shelah or Shelah. Uh, for example, like in, like in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 35, refers to him as Shelah. But Shelah, Salah are the same person. And then in verse 13 in Genesis 11, it says, After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. Now remember that Eber's name is translated Hebrew. And Hebrew means to cross over or it means one from beyond. Hebrew means to cross over or one from beyond. Something to remember because later on in the book of Genesis, um, Abraham will be referred to as a Hebrew. In verse 15, as we continue, it says, After he begot Eber, uh, Salah lived uh, 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Uh, Eber lived uh, 34 years and begot uh, Peleg. And after he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. And Reu lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug uh, lived 30 years, I'm in verse 22 now, and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. And the chart, of course, is on the screen, so you can kind of follow along. And in verse 24, Nahor lived 29 years and begot uh, Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. And in verse 26, now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram or Abraham, Nahor and Haran. And so this genealogy of Shem in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, it it focuses more on his descendants through his son Arphaxad. And so you'll notice that it doesn't list all of Shem's sons as it does in Genesis chapter 10, verse 22. So this genealogy in chapter 11 um, also follows the descendants of Peleg, which is not mentioned in chapter 10. So those are some differences here between chapter 10 and chapter 11. And if you go to the New Testament and you look in Luke chapter 3, verses 35 and 36, it actually adds Canaan as a son of Arphaxad, and it lists Salah or Shelah as Canaan's son. But if you also want to reference the same genealogy, um, you can go to First Chronicles uh, chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, if you're interested in that type of thing. Uh, but the Lord focuses on this lineage because this is the family line that the Messiah or the Christ is going to come through. And so when was this expectation of the Messiah mentioned? Because I mentioned Messiah, uh, the anointed one, in other words, or the New Testament, Christ. Christ uh, comes from the Greek uh, language. And so when was this expectation of the Messiah mentioned um, already? And so we've already covered uh, 11 chapters in Genesis. So when was he mentioned? When was he hinted at? And so, once again, um, that takes us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And so, God is speaking to the serpent 
um, that the devil used to tempt Eve. And so God tells him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So so back then, back in Genesis three, the expectation of the Messiah had already been mentioned. And in Genesis 11, of course, as we've seen, as we looked at this lineage from Shem to Abraham or Abram, uh, we're, we're seeing here this lineage of the coming Messiah. And so we want to dissect this verse here, Genesis 3.15. So spiritually, there's going to be hostility between Satan and the woman. And that would include mankind, who also, of course, comes through the woman. There would also be hostility between the offspring or children of the devil. And the children of the devil are those who practice sin. And Jesus even mentioned that in John chapter 8, verse 44. And I used to, by the way, be a child of the devil. And I'm not talking biologically. I'm talking about in the way that I lived, a Christless life, practicing sin, a child of the devil. And so there would also be hostility between the woman's Um, between the offspring of the devil and her seed. Her seed has a capital S here in Genesis 3.15, and that's speaking of the Messiah. And and the Messiah will be her seed because uh, she would be a virgin. She will not need the seed of a human man. And so it will be a miraculous conception. And so that's why, again, it speaks of her seed But then it says that the enemy shall bruise the heel of the Messiah. So in other words, the the Messiah, and I covered this before, but the Messiah will be brought down to a level where the quote unquote snake or devil will be able to attack him. And and how is that so? Jesus is God, always was God, the eternal God, the word in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So how would he become at a level or get to a level where the enemy will be able to attack him. Well, that is talking about the humanity, the human flesh that he will put on. And so he will be attacked while he was on this earth. And we see that at the crucifixion. So already the, even the crucifixion of Christ will be hinted at or is hinted at in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. However, the good news is that Jesus, that is the woman's seed with the capital S, will crush the enemy. He will crush the enemy. And we've seen that taking place or we've seen that take place already as he defeated the enemy through the cross and through the resurrection. Now, one thing to notice as we looked at these verses in verses 10 through um, 26 in Genesis 11, uh, we noticed that the people in this genealogy, hopefully you noticed that, that these people are not living as long as the people did in the flood. For example, when you look at Adam's genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, they were living like 900 something years and such. And here you don't see any of that. And so uh, you, you see that their lifespan is, is, is decreasing. And one of the reasons for that is the water vapor canopy that surrounded the earth pre-flood is no longer there to protect the people from radiation. And so now the people are aging quicker and, and, and they just don't have this protection they used to have when this water vapor canopy was there. But remember, God released that during the time of the flood. 
Uh, but another reason for this decrease of age is the fact that uh, the, the, the effects of sin is starting to be more evident. It's starting to take shape even more. And so the lifespans are not as long as they used to be pre-flood. And so you see, once again, the effects of sin. And I just want to throw something out there that sin right now may be fun. And when I was in the world, sin was fun. But guess what? Eventually, the effects of sin will show. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And now in speaking of Moses' faith, just to show you that, that, that sin can sometimes be fun, especially when you don't have the Lord in your life. Remember that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, when it was talking about Moses and Moses' faith in that hall of faith, it says that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You see, sin could be pleasurable, but it is a passing pleasure. But also the effect of sin will eventually show or be revealed like you see here in this genealogy. Because you see all of these people, uh, they're, they're dying at certain ages. Their lifespan is shorter. And even when you talk about the effects of sin, we we know that a life of sin could lead to physical death. And first of all, by the way, that's why we have physical death. That's, that's why we have sicknesses. That's why we have diseases and disabilities and so forth. It's an effect of sin. And so we do see the effects now. But it could also lead in some people to an early death. For example, with drug abuse, which is a sinful practice alcoholism, things like that could lead to an early death. But of course, sin leads to spiritual death where there's no fellowship with God. And so that person doesn't have the life of God in them. In other words, they don't have eternal life in them because the life of God is eternal. So if you don't have the life of God, you don't have eternal life. And so a person who dies in their spiritually dead state That is, a person who dies in the state where they never repent and receive Jesus, they're going to experience what we call eternal death. And so you see the effect of sin. But even more, even more practically, because we know the spiritual stuff. We, and so with some of this, I'm preaching to the choir here, but sin could also lead to the death of relationships. Are you sin against someone? You offend them. That person may not want to be in a relationship with you anymore. It could also lead to the death of trust. You see that sin breeds death. Genesis 11 verses 27 and 28, it says, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah means station, by the way. He begot Abram. Abram, by the way, means exalted father. And so Terah begot Abram, this exalted father. He begot Nahor and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah. In other words, during his father Terah's lifetime in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
And so Ur was a major city in southern Mesopotamia or Babylonia. And so at this point, we're looking at the genealogy from Terah to Abram. And so now we're taking this magnifying glass and we're focusing more on his family. And so these are still the descendants of Shem, but now just more focus on the descendants of Terah because we're trying to get to Abram or Abraham. And just so you know, and I mentioned it before, yes, Abram's name would be changed to Abraham later. And so Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Now, even though Abram was listed first here, it doesn't mean that he is the oldest. The reason he was mentioned first is because God chose him for the uh, messianic line to be the forefather of the Messiah. So that's why he's mentioned first. Now, those of you who found a problem with some of the math with, with Moses' age, let me help you out a little bit. So Terah was 70 years old when he had his first son, according to Genesis chapter 11, 26. Doesn't mean that he was 70 years old when he had all three, including Abram. Just he was 70 when he had his first son. And we don't believe that, that Abram was the first son of Terah. But 70 years old when he had his first son. And then we'll find out later that Terah died at 205 years of age, according to Genesis 11.32. But then you look at Genesis 12.4, which we're not going to get there tonight. But it tells us that Abraham left Haran at 75 years of age. And then if you go to the New Testament in Acts chapter 7, verse 4, we learn that Abram moved from Haran when his father died at 205 years old. And so this means that Terah probably had Abram or Abraham around 130 years of age. And so that's to help you out if you're keeping up with the math of this study. But we see here that Abram's or Abraham's hometown was Ur of the Chaldeans. And just a little bit about Ur. Because Ur of the Chaldeans is where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers come together at the Persian Gulf. And it was located about 10 miles west of the Euphrates River near this gulf. And some 200 miles southeast of Baghdad. And so today it would be in the southern area of modern Iraq. That's where Abram was from. And although Ur was declining politically during the time of Abram, which was about 2000 BC, the economic and cultural level of the people of Ur remained at a comparatively high level. The economic and cultural level of the people of Ur remained at a comparatively high level, even though politically it was kind of declining. And there is, by the way, a ziggurat that's located in Ur that's been discovered in the 1920s. And so this ziggurat, by the way, is one of the largest and best preserved ziggurats in Mesopotamia. So the Bible is real. Was found in archaeology supports the Bible. And then the temple The temple on top of the ziggurat, by the way, was dedicated to a moon goddess, Nana. And so uh, I point all of this out because I I want you to see where Abram grew up, where where Abram and his family are from. 
And you're going to begin to understand this call that God has for Abram to come out. But in verses uh, 29 and 30, still in Genesis 11, it says, Then Abram and Nahor, that's one of his brothers, took wives. Now, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, means princess, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, or queen. And the daughter of Haran, or the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. In other words, she was unable to conceive. She had no child, the scriptures tell us. And so at this point, her name was Sarai. But of course, later on, her name will be changed to Sarah. And it means noble woman or princess. So both Sarai and Sarah means princess. And in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, what you find out about Sarai or Sarah is that Sarai is Abram's father's daughter, but they have different mothers. So in other words, his wife is his half-sister. Now, during that time, this type of relationship was not forbidden. It didn't become forbidden until the Mosaic law came out, until God gave the law to Moses to share with the children of Israel. That's when it became forbidden. Speaking of this type of relationship, Uh, But also, we need to remember that at this time, the gene pool, human genes, it it was still not as corrupt as they are now. And so what we see here in this scripture, what stood out to me is that a problem has been identified. And, And the problem that's been identified here is in regard to Sarai. She was barren. She was unable to conceive. And this problem is disclosed here. It is mentioned here because it's going to set up the rest of the narrative or story that is going to take place in regard to this couple. See, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God is going to disclose his promises and plans to Abram. And so we've seen the problem. His wife is barren. But we're also going to see in those promises in chapter 12, this built-in solution to this issue. And it's the same way with us. Yes, with us, we can identify the problems in our lives. We can identify the problems in this world. We can identify the problems within our families. But the question is, are you going to allow God to be the solution? Are you going to allow God to to bring the resolution to these issues? Or are you going to try to solve these issues on your own? See here, the problems identified and and indirectly in chapter 12, we're going to see this issue. Yes, that God has a plan to resolve this problem of her barrenness. Verses 31 and 32, still in Genesis 11, it says in Terah, took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans or Babylonia to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, which is a city in northern Syria, and they dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. And so Terah took his family, 
Abram, his wife, Lot, who's the son of Haran. His father died in Ur of the Chaldeans, their hometown. They settled in Haran. And Haran is some 500 plus miles northwest of Ur of the Chaldeans. And the reason they went that way, or the reason they could have went there, or why they could have went that way is, is because they had to follow the path of food and water instead of going diagonally through the desert, which that makes sense to me. But speaking of Haran, the city was a center of worship of the moon god, Sin. And the other great center of sin worship was Ur of the Chaldeans. So from one idolatrous place to another idolatrous place in Haran. And so we look at chapter 12 now in Genesis. It says now, the Lord, as the story continues, has said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. And so according to Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, God appeared to Abram actually while he was still in Mesopotamia. In other words, in Ur of the Chaldees, even before he started living in Haran. Because here, as you look in Genesis 12, verse 1, you would think that, okay, God only spoke to him and told him to get out of his country only in Haran. But let, let's turn to um, Acts chapter 7 and look at verses 7 um, and look at verses 2 through 4. Because there we're going to find out there's, there's more to the story. And so in Acts 7 verse 2, it says, and he said, brethren and fathers, listen. And this is Stephen or Stephen preaching however you want to pronounce his name. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So while he was still in Ur, it says, before he dwelt in Haran. So God spoke to him there the first time. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And so we get more to the story in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen is preaching. And so this explains the reason that Terah, Abram, Sarai, and Lot left Ur of the Chaldeans in order to make their way to Canaan, according to Genesis eleven thirty one. So that's why they were going to Canaan. So, so somehow, somehow the rest of the family heard about what God had told Abram while he was yet in Ur of the Chaldeans. However, we see in the story that while Terah was alive, they didn't make it past Haran. They settled in Haran. And so now in Genesis 12, as we just read, we see this second command for Abram to leave and go to Canaan. And so in Joshua um, chapter 24, verse 2, we find, find out that Terah and others in his family were idol worshipers. And so remember that in Ur of the Chaldees, there's idol worship going on, worshiping moon god, moon god, and so forth as well as in Haran. 
And this is what Joshua says in Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, that is the river Euphrates in old times. And look at this, they served other gods. And so Abram was called while he was still in Ur to leave this environment of idol worship, which included his family who were idol worshipers. But as I mentioned before, somehow Terah got wind of God's call to Abram. Maybe Abram told him that that God wants me to leave. I received this message. He wants me to leave. Terah got wind of it, and he's the one who led the journey towards Canaan initially. But we know he didn't make it. He died at the age of 205. And, And so Abram, in other words, was not totally obedient to the word of God. He was not obedient to that first command that he received in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so now his dad is dead. Now God says, okay, let's try this again. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. God repeated himself. You see, God also wants us to leave sinful environments. God also wants us to leave the sinful lifestyle behind. God also wants us to leave an idolatrous lifestyle when we're worshiping idol gods. And you may not have a statue in front of you, but it doesn't have to be a statue in order for it to be an idol. Because whatever you place above God, that is your idol. And so God is calling us to leave these idols, this idolatrous situation, this sinful situation. Maybe it's a sinful relationship that you're involved in. Maybe it's some sinful practices or maybe sinful business practices that you're involved in. And God is calling us to, to leave that, come out of there. Even leave your negative influences. That group you're hanging with, they're they're shut off to the gospel. They don't want to hear the gospel. They're making fun of you. You tried. They're just being a negative influence on you. Maybe God is saying, okay, come out of that negative influence. You, You shared the gospel. At this point, you are casting your pearls before swine. And so as God reveals to us that he wants us to leave a certain environment, even certain people or groups or relationships, the question is, will we obey? We can get on Abraham all we want. Okay, for the first time, he wasn't totally obedient. And even the second time, by the way, we haven't gotten there yet. He's still going to have a lot with him. But, but, but what if you're not necessarily in a sinful environment? What if you're not necessarily around negative influences, but God still wants you to go out where he's leading you, even if it's away from family? Would you still go? But, but, but God, but, but pastor, it's, it's not a sinful situation. Do I really have to go? Did, did God tell you to go? Is God leading you out? But, but I want to be around my family. I, I know it seems like God is leading me out, but I don't want to leave my family. Well, 
Well, Jesus says this, Luke 14, verses 26 and 27, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple, his follower, his student, his pupil. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple or follower. So Jesus, this is harsh. Some of you would say, see, this is not talking about the hate the way we think of it. What this is saying is that you love the Lord and you place your relationship with the Lord so highly. It's so important to you that every other relationship is not necessarily hate in the literal sense, but it would seem like hate. So in other words, everyone else, everything else need to be secondary to the Lord. So this is what Jesus is saying. That if you want to be my follower, I need to be first. Mom and dad, brother, sister, even your own life, that can't get in the way. And my first is, is Jesus is asking. And whoever does not bear his cross, cross, of course, speaks of death, speaks of suffering. Whoever does not bear his cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. And here's the thing, when God is telling us to leave something, see, when he tells us to leave something, when he tells us to leave a relationship, for example, that's unhealthy, even though we may not think it's unhealthy, when he tells us to leave something, he's taking us to something. When he tells us to leave something, he's taking us to something. Because notice this, he tells Abram to get out of your country, so leave from your family, your father's house. Then he says, to a land that I will show you. And so we need to keep that in mind when the Lord is leading us out and it seems scary and you don't know where you're going. Lord, can I really trust you in this? Can I really trust you, Lord, in this decision in my life? But the Lord is calling you out of that because he has something better. Whatever he's taking you to is better. For example, he calls us to leave spiritual death. And what does he want to take us to? He wants to take us to or help us to enter spiritual life. He wants us to leave the life of sin and what does he want to take us to? He wants to take us to the victorious life in the spirit. He wants us to leave the life of failing to reach our full potential. And he wants us to enter that life of reaching our full potential in Christ. You see, I want you to get the point that whenever he's asking us to leave something, and it could be a literal location from one city to the next, from one job to the next, from one relationship to the next, or it could be from one lifestyle to the next. Whenever he asks us to leave to something, he's taking us to something better, just like what he's doing with Abraham or Abram. But, but Pastor Durrell, there's something that is near and dear to me that I can't let go. Well, the question I have for you is, do you want to be taken to something better? Because God always has better. In verse 2 in chapter 12, it says, I will make of you, speaking to Abraham or Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And so what we're going to see here is the Abrahamic covenant. 
this covenant that he made, that God made with Abraham. We're going to see this in verses 2 and 3. You see, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And this, by the way, is an unconditional covenant. You see, an unconditional covenant is an agreement between two parties. But only one of the two parties has to do something. Nothing is required of the other party. So this covenant that God is making with Abraham or Abram is, like I said, unconditional, but it's because of God's grace, his undeserved, unearned favor. And so we're going to go through a few points of this Abrahamic covenant. You see, first of all, God promised to make him a great nation. And yes, we see that Israel has been made a great nation. They have multiple people, bunch of people. Lots of Jews on this planet. And, and even at the time of the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, by the way, and these were the, the, the Israelites being led out of slavery from Egypt. The scriptures tell us in Exodus 12, 37, that his descendants numbered over 2 million. So, so specifically, it says some 600 men plus their wives and many children, pretty much. And so if every... If every one of these 600 men had a wife and at least one child, you can do the math. And so at least 2 million at the time of the Exodus. And so, yes, he made them a great nation. There's many Israelites and Jews or Jews today. And then he promised to bless Abram in this covenant. And yes, Abram was blessed materially. He was also blessed spiritually. So both materially and spiritually, this man was blessed. Then the third part of this covenant says that God promised to make his name great. Now, what's interesting about Abraham is that the three major world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all respect Abraham or Abraham. And so, yes, his name is great. His name is well-respected. In fact, God also promised that Abram would be a blessing. And so he will be a blessing in a spiritual sense. And so that's four so far. And so we go into verse three. It says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And so to bless means to do good for or benefit. And to curse means to despise, dishonor, or to have contempt for, maybe even harm. And then he says, and in you all families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see the fifth point in this Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> that God will bless those who bless Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you. And in talking about blessing Abraham, this includes all of his descendants. And so the Jews, of course, will come from him. And guess what? As we bless Israel, we will be blessed. And it's been said by many preachers and Bible scholars that the U.S. has been blessed for so long due to our good treatment of Israel. Of course, that can change. Here's the next thing. Next part of the covenant, God will curse those who curse Abraham. 
And guess what? When it comes to us, God even takes vengeance on those who treat believers wrong. See, look what it says in Romans 12, verse 19 in the New Living Translation. It says, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So that particular scripture is found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. And so God will take vengeance. Our job, Jesus says, is to love, is to bless, is to do good and pray for our enemies. That's our job. Let God be the one to take revenge or to handle our enemies. In Romans 12, 21, the scriptures say the following. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And and that's what happens when we continue to love our enemies. We continue to bless them. We continue to do good to them and we pray for them. We're not be overcome by evil, but we're overcoming evil with good. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. But now here's the seventh point I want to bring out in regard to the Abrahamic covenant. Is that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so many times, I want you to get this, many times the Lord is not just blessing us for us. Yes, we're his children. He wants to bless us. Yes, he blesses us. But it's not just for us, but it's so that we can be a blessing to others. And so there used to be a time that even during uh, preparation to, to, to teach the word of God, when it doesn't seem like anything is coming, like it doesn't seem like I'm, you know, receiving anything from the Lord, any timely word, there, there's been no time when you get, you get a little nervous. Like, okay, Lord, the, the day is coming up. Do you have anything for me to share? I used to get nervous, but, but I don't get nervous about that anymore. You know why? Because it's not about me. I understand that, that he doesn't give me the timely word just to keep to myself or, or because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so special or, or whatever the case may be. But the reason I don't become nervous is because I know that he wants to bless you. Because I know that he loves people. And because I know these things, then I know that he's going to give me a word to share with people in, at the right time. And so I don't really get nervous about that anymore. So, so many times the Lord blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. And even when it comes to sharing uh, material resources or finances or things like that, just as an example, don't you notice that the people who always give always have something to give? Lord blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others, just like it was in the case of Abram or Abraham. You see, based on our studies, it's evident that that sin and the sin nature are having an effect on the human race. Why do I say that? I say that because we've seen that Cain murdered his brother. So there you go. Sin and the sin nature having an effect on the human race. You have the first murder take place. We've seen that. First 11 chapters of Genesis. We've seen death that was brought to the human race. Again, sin and the sin nature having an effect on the human race. 
Then we saw that there was gross wickedness on the earth during Noah's time so that the judgment of God came upon the people, came upon the earth in the form of a worldwide flood. We've even seen in in the earlier part of chapter 11 in Genesis that the group of people united to, to, to do evil. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a city. They wanted to build this tower. They wanted to prevent themselves from being dispersed on the earth, which was against God's will because he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and to spread on the earth. So we've seen that in Genesis 11, the first nine verses. You see in this sin and sin nature having an effect on the human race. You've seen God mix up the languages, causing people to be scattered. You don't want to be scattered as I wanted you to be. Now you must scatter. Languages are confused. You can't carry out your plans now. You're not united in your language anymore. So now we have all of these languages and people groups. But guess what? In talking about the effect of sin and the sin nature, we've even seen idolatry. And we talked a lot about that tonight. Idolatry. Abraham was in an idolatrous environment, had an idolatrous family. But we see the different people groups. Many of whom are on their way to an eternity without God. That was the case back then, and that is the case now. But one thing we see is that God had a plan. And his plan was to call one man, Abram or Abraham, to be the father of a nation that will bring forth the Messiah, whom we know as Jesus. And this nation, of course, will be Israel. And we call it the chosen nation because that's the nation he chose. But he started with one man. That was his plan. To start with this one man. To bring forth this eventually Messiah through this chosen nation, Israel. And to the Israelites, to the Jews, the true God was revealed. The Mosaic law was given. The prophecies about the Messiah and the millennial kingdom were given. And of course, I've already mentioned this thousands of times, the Messiah would come as a Jew born of a virgin through this nation that would come through this one man, Abram. This was God's plan. These Jews, the Jews, they would, they would also have the privilege of being light to the other nations, to the Gentiles. They, they were to share about their God, about the true and the living God. But as a whole, the nation of Israel, they were not faithful to their calling. These descendants of Abram, they were not faithful to their calling. But more importantly, as you read the Old Testament, they were not faithful to God. And so it became evident that the nation itself, these descendants of Abram, it was evident that they themselves needed to be saved. They needed to be redeemed. They needed to have their sins forgiven. They would need a new heart. But when Jesus, the Messiah, came in the flesh, the the scriptures tell us that he went to them first. So in other words, these these Israelites, the Jews, they would get first dibs on salvation. 
And so in replying to a woman of Canaan who wanted a demon to be cast out of her daughter, Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But this woman, this Gentile woman was persistent and Jesus healed her daughter. Jesus used it as an opportunity to draw out this woman's faith. But then we also see this as Jesus would also as another uh, scripture to prove that Jesus would go to the house of Israel first to give them first dibs on salvation. Matthew ten six, when Jesus sent out the 12, he told them not to go to the Gentiles or into a city of the Samaritans. But he said, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Start with Israel first. That was God's plan. Start with Israel first. He called this one man. This nation will come through them. Of course, they messed up. They didn't live up to their calling. And so the Messiah was sent to them first. They were to expect him. They needed salvation as well as everyone else. Told his disciples, go to them first. But, but here's the good news. So you don't think that you're not special if you're not Jewish. We, we know that God had planned to ultimately reach all nations because remember, if you didn't catch it in Genesis 12, 3, he told Abram in this covenant that in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. And so in Isaiah 49, 6, for example, it says, indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then in New Testament, Luke 2.32, this is Simeon after Jesus was born. He said the following in reference to Jesus. You are a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And then Jesus says this in John 10, verse 16, just so you know that, yes, he came for the Jews first to offer them salvation first. But he always had it in his plan to reach out to the Jews, because in John 10, 16, he says, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold to them also I must bring or them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd, Jesus being the shepherd. And so you have Jewish believers, those who repent put their trust in Christ. You have Gentile believers. Once again, those who repent and put their trust in Christ, they will become one flock. They will become the church. So any believer, no matter what language you speak, no matter how you look, no matter where you're from, you are a part of the church. If you repent right now and put your trust in Christ and Jesus says that they will be one flock and one shepherd. This is not talking about Mormons, by the way, because they would use this to say that those who are not of this Bold are talking about um, them. It's not out of context. Acts chapter 26, verse 23. The apostle Paul here is addressing King Agrippa, Agrippa, and he stated that Christ would suffer, that he will be the first to rise from the dead and will proclaim light to the Jewish people. And guess what? And to the Gentiles. Notice the order. Galatians 3.8. I love this. This ties in with our study. Galatians 3, 8, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached 
the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying in you all nations shall be blessed. So redeeming all people groups, no matter what people group you belong to, no matter what nation you come from, no matter what what part of the earth you're from or whatever what hole you come under, no matter what your hair t- texture is, no matter if you have a beard, a mustache, you're bald-headed, whatever the case may be, redeeming all people groups was always in God's plan. But get this, on a personal level, because some of you may think, well, or may have thought, well, you know, reading this scripture was... You know, we seem like we're, we're an afterthought as Gentiles. That maybe God didn't have a plan to save us, but, but, and we're just thrown into the salvation plan as an afterthought. Well, I just showed you scriptures that show you that it always was in the God's plan to save all people groups. But personally, you may feel that way. You see, for example, you may not have been the favorite child. You may have felt like an afterthought and that you're not in your parents' plans. Or maybe you received a gift from someone as an afterthought. They just forgot about you. And at the last second, they just pulled out some rinky-dink gift and said, oh, here it is. But they really forgot about you. So to them, you were an afterthought. Or maybe this, those of you who work, maybe you may not have been the first choice in your company. So maybe you were hired to your position as an afterthought. And then, of course, we know that there are plenty of stories of athletes not being the first choice or the starter on their team. But in a moment of desperation, the team turns to them. But they were an afterthought. Like the 49ers quarterback, Brock Purdy, that's not even my favorite team, but that was a situation there. I think he was the last one drafted, came a starter and led his team to the playoffs. He was an afterthought. So many of you have gone through life thinking that you were an afterthought, even in the plan of salvation. But, but I just want to reassure you that you are not an afterthought with God. It was always in God's plan for you to be in his family. In fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us as the worship team takes the stage, Romans 8 tells us, In verse 29, that uh, it says, for whom he foreknew. In other words, those he knew in advance, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So in other words, believers, those of you who have put your trust in Christ, those of you who have put your trust in Christ right now, and you are a part of the family of God, God already knew what you were going to do. God foreknew you. He knew you in advance. And his plan for you, in other words, he predestined you beforehand to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And so there's a little subtle difference when it talks about election and predestination because election focuses on who? Focuses on the person. So as a believer, yes, you are elect. But the predestination talks about a destination. And so for every believer, for every person that God foreknew, in other words, you were not an afterthought. He knew who you were in advance. He knew you would be a part of the flock in advance. So for the believer, he preplanned for you to be what? Where's the destination? For you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, his son, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And so I just want you to remember this, that, that, that you are not an afterthought with God. Remember that you are not an afterthought when you feel dejected. Remember you are not an afterthought with God when you feel unloved. Remember that you are not an afterthought with God when you feel discouraged. Remember that you are not an afterthought with God when you feel like everybody else kicked you to the curb. Remember that you are not an afterthought with God when you feel unwanted. Maybe by a family member. Maybe by a spouse. Maybe by your place of employment. Maybe by your school teacher. Maybe by your community. Even... Even in this country, you may feel unwanted, but you are not an afterthought with God. And so you need to remember that you need to go back to the word and see how God views you. And you need to stick with that. Amen. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that we are not an afterthought with you. That even with your plan with Abraham, Lord, you you always had us in mind. And so we praise you that you have a wonderful plan for us that was worked out from eternity. And so, Lord, if there's anybody who has not received Jesus as personal Savior and Lord, may you draw them tonight. And if there's any believers, Lord, who are discouraged, they they feel unwanted, they feel underappreciated, Father, remind them, Lord, of who they are in Christ. They are not an afterthought. They were always in your plan. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.